You're listening to the Life in Christ Church podcast, your place for life-changing messages that will build your faith and propel your life. If you enjoyed today's message, why don't you be a blessing and share it with a friend? Father, we thank you so much. We worship you for your anointing and your presence among men, that you might just raise us up in consciousness tonight, that we might experience what we haven't, hear what we need to hear, feel what we haven't yet felt, to raise us to a place of amazing confidence and boldness. The world needs to see believers taking their place as sons of God. The world is waiting for the sons of God to take their place. So Father, I ask you to do that tonight. Let the impartations be rich, deep. May they bring us up to heights that we've not yet scaled. Father, may we experience, Lord God, your presence even as we sing. We choose to believe because we can that you are here in a great and mighty way. And we put our expectation on you and what you can do. Lord, I thank you for these meetings. I thank you for where you're taking us, for where we ought to go, and we're going. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen and amen. Can you say amen, everybody? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Sarah. Amen, amen. Well, God is so good, and I know you know that, amen. Sometimes it's just great to say it a few times and be reminded, amen, that we serve a wonderful God. Hallelujah. If you want to take your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 10. We're going to talk about Christian consciousness tonight. And actually, this service tonight, I believe to be a service of impartations, amen. And so just right from the very beginning, I'll just set the stage by saying we're going to minister to any and everybody here tonight. Amen. And the words of the Lord will be there. Praise the Lord to bless your life. The presence of the Lord will be rich to empower your life. Amen. Now, you know, we, we, we have to be careful, of course, because um, when you're on this side of the covenant, we're no longer needing a man to do anything for us. There is one man that is a mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. And you know, Jesus is in heaven in a human body. He's forever in a human body, you know. He is a man, but He is God. Hallelujah. And so in this covenant, we don't have to go searching for anointings. We all have them. We have the anointing of Jesus Christ. We have the resurrected and the glorified Christ. Hallelujah. Do you know before the cross, Jesus was different than He is after the cross? I don't know if you know that, but some people wouldn't agree with that. Some people want to, to embellish the idea that Jesus, you know, can do what no man can do. And because it was Jesus, we believe in what He did through the Scriptures, through those wonderful Gospels. But for a man to think that he could duplicate the ministry of Christ would be an error. And yet Jesus himself said over there in John chapter 14, verse 12, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater shall you do because I go unto my Father. Amen. We know that Jesus had an opportunity to speak like that even before he said that to us 
when he said over in John chapter 5, defending the idea that he had raised up the man at the pool of Bethesda, he did it on the Sabbath. And of course, the Pharisees forgot about the miracle. They just wanted to needle him about what they thought he did wrong. And they said, what? They said, who do you think you are on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus said, my father's always working and I too am always working. Well, that didn't make him any happier. Now they said, you think, you think you're God. You calling God your father is the same thing as blasphemy. Well, Jesus went on to talk about, I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. And I'm telling you, if you think you've seen something so far, my father's getting ready to show me even greater works than these. So then he went on later in John 14 to tell us what? The works I do, you shall do also, and even greater shall you do. In other words, he seems to include us into the idea that we should be doing everything that he did. And yet, the idea is, before the cross, Jesus walked in, listen closely, Adam's anointing. He walked in the anointing of the first Adam. Amen. Thank you for all that enthusiasm. <laughs> Amen. Some folks who try to fight you on this said, oh, no, 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 Jesus. You know, he had all of the Spirit. He did have all of the Spirit for the task at hand. But he didn't wear all the Spirit that there was. Hmm. That's interesting. Because we'll use that verse of Scripture over there. You see in John chapter 3 toward the end of the chapter. Around verse 33 or so, we'll use that chapter. She said Jesus had the Spirit without measure to say, see, we can't really duplicate the ministry of Jesus, but the body a whole as, as, a, as a corporate body can duplicate the ministry of Jesus. But then that would actually work against us if we got more people saved. Do you not see the law of diminishing returns? In other words, if you have a pie and you cut it into 12 pieces, that means there are 12 people, each gets a piece. Well, if you add a million people to the body of Christ, now you've got a million and 12 pieces. Does that give us a lot? No, it even means we have less. Because we as the body of Christ represent His full anointing. No, we don't. Each individual represents His full anointing. You know, God, God likes math. I hope you know that. You look in the Bible, He's really good at math. Amen. Now, he would have already figured out that if Jesus was taking all of the anointing that there is and using that upon the face of the earth and then saying, you're going to take my anointing as the collective body and do something with it, then the more people that came in, the more it would diminish how many people we could actually get healed or set free. So, you know, if it's not my turn for another million devils to come out, I got to wait. Is this making sense? I'll go back to the pie illustration. If there's 12 disciples and those 12 disciples represented the anointing of Jesus, then every 12 devils, they could get one out. Does not, that, not, that make sense? So add to the pie individuals and you decrease how many devils you can get out in your lifetime because you've got to wait your turn. Now, Jesus didn't walk in all the anointing when he was on the earth. He walked in Adam's anointing. Yeah, but he had the spirit without 
uh, without measure. He did for the assignment. Let me ask you a question. If we send our boys over to some place like Iraq or Afghanistan or some other place around the world to do the bidding of the United States and as peacekeepers to the world, sometimes people are sent on political reasons. We know that. But let's just say it's a, a valid reason why we're sending our troops somewhere. Do they have weaponry without measure? Yes. But do they have all of the arsenal that we own in the United States? No. Why? Because they give them what they need and more for the assignment. And if the assignment only needs five and you've got ten, then they've got five plus. If they use five, there's more to give them. But, but they don't need all ten if they don't have to use all ten. When Jesus was sent, he was sent on the assignment to complete the assignment. And in that assignment, he had more than enough of the anointing to complete the assignment. My goodness, you look back at the scriptures and even Jesus said, God gets rid of a devil with the flick of his finger, so why do you need the whole hand? Jesus came as what? The second Adam? No, he came as the last Adam. So he came in the anointing of the first Adam to straighten out everything that the first Adam messed up. Now how are you going to straighten that out and have legal right when you get to heaven to be able to put the devil in his place? If, if God gave Jesus a thousand percent more ability than he gave the first Adam, would that be legal? Would that be legal? No. The devil would have a right to bicker and complain, well, the only reason why Jesus beat me is because you gave him so much more power than you gave the first Adam. Then he wouldn't have had to be the last Adam. God gave Jesus the same thing that he gave Adam. And Jesus defeated the devil on the terms of what Adam, the first man, lost those terms so that it was legal across the board. Come on, folks. God didn't really care too much for the Adams family. <laughs> it went south right away. There were things and it's and it just wasn't right. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Some of you are old enough to get that. <laughs> but in other words, why did God send Jesus as the last, listen, of the Adams? if he wasn't going to take the Adam's family and bury it and come out of the grave as the resurrected and glorified Christ, not the new and improved Adam, that family was over. He came out of the grave as the resurrected and the glorified Christ that as many as would receive him, to them God would give power to become Adam's, no, a new creation called what? Sons of God. And the first thing John, anointed by the Holy Ghost, wrote after he said that were, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, and not of the will of man. How come he went for the throat 
of what we all recognize because he wanted you to know that you are a brand new creation. All old things have been passed away and all things have become new. You no longer are you supposed to identify with the fact that you've got human blood. Well, you know, my father had, you know, this disease and my, my grandfather had heart trouble and, and that's why I'm starting to have palpitations. It does not matter what family of the earth that you are in because you are not born of blood. You are born of the DNA of Almighty God, hallelujah, and He doesn't have any heart disease in heaven, so there's no heart disease on the earth. And you are not born of the will of flesh nor the will of man. Man doesn't control you, and the flesh doesn't control you. And John went on to say, but you are born of God. Your identity now is as a God person on the earth. Greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. And you could even turn around and say it this way. Greater is he that is in me than me. The greatest part of me is him. And him is living in me. Hallelujah. That's the reason why over in John 17, Jesus cried out to the Father in that wonderful prayer. The whole chapter of John 17 is a prayer. And he said right at the beginning, Father, I thank you that I've completed my assignment. I've finished what you've asked me to do. Now glorify me with the glory that I had from the beginning of time. Well, if he had to be glorified with the glory that he actually had, it seems to indicate that he doesn't have it right now. And doesn't that go along with Philippians in chapter 2? Starting in verse 5, where Jesus came as a man and humbled himself, and he did what? He laid aside his privileges or the glory. In other words, he took who he was as the Godhead and laid that aside to come as a man and be anointed as a man as the last of the Adams and fix everything that the first Adam messed up so he couldn't even go to the grave until he had won every battle and changed everything as a man under the anointing of Adam so that when he went to the grave, he have legal grounds to take the keys of death and hell and rule and reign over the devil himself. Woo, amen. Started right out of the gate sprinting. Praise the Lord. One of my favorite verses of Scripture, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus looked at his disciples, and he's even got steam coming out of them. Come on, you ever see some of the football players, you know, those big men, and they're in those tight little uniforms, and it's, and it's a real cold, cold day, but they're working up such a temperature in their body, working so hard, they take their helmets off, and steam just comes off the top of their head. You ever seen that? Well, Jesus, fresh out of the grave, steams coming off the top of his head. He just grappled with the devil and whipped them so bad and beat every, every sickness and every disease and every wicked spirit in the heavenly places, dethroned them all and took. He didn't, wasn't given to him. He took the keys of death and hell, and he came out a victor over death, hell, and the grave. And there was steam coming off of him. I'm telling you what, he wasn't right yet. You know what I mean by that? Not right. We'd be in the Ramus Singers and Band, and we'd be up there singing, and the power of God would fall on us, and we'd dance all over the platform, you know? And then, you know, you just think that, you just get the feeling like, well, this night's going to be a dancing night, you know? Because we're all just still just kind of wound, you know what I mean? Ready to, and Brother Hagin take the platform and go, well, Father, we just thank you now in the presence of the Lord that you're work, and we're like, it's over? It's over? Oh, okay, that's our cue to go sit down. 
Otherwise, he would have turned around and said, come on, sing that song again. Come on, you guys just shout the victory. Amen. Let's turn these young folks loose. But when he stood up, took the pulpit, and just said, well, Father, thank you so much for thy word, thy holy written word. It was like that was over. And you'd go back down, and you'd sit down, but you weren't sitting down. You're kind of like the little boy that said, you know, I'm standing in the corner, but I'm sitting on the inside. Right? You'd be sitting down, but your legs still be wiggling. And he'd be talking, and it'd be sometimes five to ten minutes before you could get your brain wrapped around what he was saying, because you were still up there dancing. You were still, your blood's pumping. Come on, come on, you know what I'm talking about. And it doesn't have to be a spiritual thing for that to happen. You can get so intertwined with something that, you know, the moment you stop, you're still doing it. Come on, Jesus get, just got through taking the keys of death and hell and came out of the grave with all that power. You think he was right in his mind? No, I think he almost might have scared the disciples when they saw the fire in his eyes. The fire in his eyes. One of my friends, Joe Morris, stands in the office of a prophet, and here he is, you know, on the, on the night or the afternoon that Fred Couples won the Masters in 1997. And that morning service, he said, was so bland and so dry, and he said, God, he just had this kind of relationship with the Lord. He said, God, if that's the best you can do, then you can prepare for tonight's service. I'm going to watch the Masters. So he went ahead and watched Fred Couples win, and he said, and then he started getting ready, and as he started getting ready, he started getting a little bit nervous, like, oh my gosh, I didn't do any praying, you know, I didn't do any preparing, you know, and he gets to the service that night and takes the platform, doesn't even really know where he's going to start or where he's going to go, because he hadn't done anything, you know. And he said he got out in front and he started to do a little Elvis impersonation and all, you know, because Joe does that, you know. And he said all of a sudden, the hair on the back of his neck went, and he realized something's in this room, and he turned around, and there was Jesus standing on the steps, walking up to the platform. Joe looked at him and saw him, and all he could think of was, you know what I mean? I mean, kind of, you know, like, oh, God, forgive me. I sinned. You know what I mean? Lord, I didn't, I watched the masters. I didn't prepare. Oh, God, I told you what I told you. And now here you are. You showed up, you know what I mean, in the flesh. And here I'm just looking at you. And Jesus pointed his finger at him, and he said his eyes were full of fire. And he shouted in a voice that you could tell he was a preacher. Amen. He wasn't just a teacher. He was a preacher, a proclamator who proclaimed the truth. And he shouted to them and said, tell them, tell them when I walked on the water, I did it as a man. Tell them when I, when I opened the grave for Lazarus, I did it as a man. Tell them when I multiplied the fish and the bread, I did it as a man. Tell them. Joe said his hair was just split back and his eyes yes sir I'll tell them you know what I mean wow what an experience what an experience how did he tell the disciples all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me don't you think he just thought of how he took the keys of death and hell and ripped them out of the devil's hand and watched him scurry away beaten Thoroughly thrashed. Knowing forever that the devil would never hinder anyone in life ever again. We give him so much credit when there's no credit due his name. 
He's not worthy of a name. And Jesus said, all power has been given. That's the first time any human being has ever encompassed the power of Almighty God. Now Jesus didn't walk in all the power until he came out of the grave. And that's the Christ that we have been united into. You look at the Gospels and you shouldn't see failure, inability within yourself. You look at the Gospels and you should see kindergarten and now I've been promoted to graduate school. I tell you, everyone in this room, you're really something to God. You're a threat to the devil because you're filled with the allness and the fullness of the resurrected and the glorified Christ. We're talking tonight about consciousness. Whoo, glory. Is anybody getting this okay? Yeah. Hallelujah. Now don't ask me to repeat what we just did. <laughs> Amen. That just came from somewhere. That might have been that, that Amish restaurant where we ate all that food. That might have been where it came from. I'm not sure. Might have been from the Sound and Sight Theater, amen, that wonderful production that it came, we saw this afternoon. But all I know is, is that's God, what we just got through sharing. And if you'll grab a hold of these first 10 to 12 minutes, it can change your life. Everything about Christianity goes back to perspective. And if you have the wrong outlook and the wrong perspective, you'll forfeit the right to walk in life as a master and as a king and as a priest unto God, where the devil will get out of your way. You know, there were seven sons of Sceva, bless their darling hearts, you know, and they just thought, you know, the, the most wonderful ministry they could be in was to cast out devils. So they were into casting out, and who knows what they did, whether they had crosses, you know, and they had garlic or what, whatever, you know, whatever their form was, you know, to get devils out. But they got a hold of watching Paul cast them out in the name of Jesus and saw something that was so powerful, it undid their whole ministry, and they were ready for something new. So they found this man with a devil in him, and they went right up to him, the seven of them, just mounting this guy and said, we adjure you to come out of this man in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they thought they had the open sesame of all open sesames. Amen. They thought they had the code, the code name. What's the code? And that devil said, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, well, who are you? And then that man overpowered them and whipped them, and they were naked running through the street. Come on, can you see seven of these guys butt naked running through the street? And people say, where are you going? Well, we're going as fast as we can away from that man. What just happened? Some devil just whipped us. How come the devil whipped you? Well, we told him to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. You got to see the essence of what just happened. 
If you don't know who you are in relationship to him, then the devil don't pay attention to you. I don't care if you use Jesus' name, you use Paul's name, you use Santa Claus' name. He's not coming out and he's not going to obey you until you know who you are. The reason why the devil knew Paul and the devil knew Jesus because both of them knew who they were in God and there was a consciousness of God within their soul. Tonight we're talking about impartations where there'll be a consciousness of God in your soul before you leave. What is that tantamount to? That's tantamount to answers. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So Christian consciousness is not that which you believe. It's not, no, it goes further than that. Or that which you have an existent faith for, it's not, no, it goes further than that. Or that which you hope, Christian consciousness is that which the soul has proven, which the soul knows, upon which the soul rests. The thing, bless God, which has become concrete in your life. In other words, where you can actually make sense of it, it's, I did that been there, done that, have the t-shirt. That's Christian consciousness. If you've accomplished something, there is a consciousness of victory for the thing that you've accomplished. There's some in here that are such good bakers. Of course, you didn't listen to the Holy Ghost because if you had, you would have made us some fresh, nice, Blueberry muffins, so I know you didn't listen, but praise the Lord the next time, just letting you know, amen. But there's some of you in here that are such good bakers at any moment, in a down day, in an up day, in I feel really good day, or don't necessarily feel very good day, in I'm wide awake day, or I'm even a tired day. The kids are kind of messing up day, or the kids are doing really great day. It's raining outside, it's cold, it's hot, the snow is falling, but no matter what it is, because you've been there, you've got the t-shirt, you know how to make them in your sleep, you have a consciousness of victory, and you're not sweaty palming it with, with sweat pouring down, and you're not all upset and nervous about making muffins. In fact, in the midst of chaos, that may be the moment you're doing something you've done before which, may, which actually may give you some sense of rest. Now, do you understand what consciousness is? It's the thing that you know, the thing that you've experienced, the thing that you're good at. Everyone in this room has a consciousness of something that you're good at, and the reason you're good at it is because you've done it more than once. One of my favorite episodes of I Love Lucy is when she was in the chocolate factory. For those of you who are old enough to remember I Love Lucy, the young generation will say Lucy who? <laughs> Lucille Ball, if you remember the redhead, right? And that particular episode, Lucy and Ethel were each at their own station in a chocolate factory and there was a conveyor belt and the chocolates came out on the conveyor belt and in that day they didn't have the machines that would just grab them perfectly and then transport them perfectly to the box. They had to actually take each chocolate and put it in a box. Well, the conveyor belt was working so fast for their level of skill. 
that they got behind. And so Lucy started chucking them, sticking them in her pocket, and eating them in her, in her pocket, and just trying to catch up, you know. And it was very hilarious, but they didn't show the following week where they had been there for about four or five days and how muscle memory took over and now they're having a conversation going like this without even thinking. And they're not behind, they're right on time. Why? Because if you do anything long enough, it'll become what? Very conscious to you. In other words, it becomes something that you actually can do, know you will do it, and have no problem getting the job done. Oh, what is Christian consciousness? Becoming so familiar to God, having worked with God, having enjoyed God, or I can say it another way. Number one, knowing that there is grace, having experienced grace, having enjoyed the experience of grace, wanting to enjoy more experiences of grace, and then going to another level of using God's grace on purpose for whatever you need. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You think there's enough of God around for us to be able to be conscious of God all day long? Do you think there's enough grace around? If this is a dispensation of grace, what would that seem to indicate? But maybe you've been in a uh, snowstorm where the snow is so heavy, by the time you brush it off, it's already back there again. Maybe grace is to that degree. Or maybe grace is kind of like vacuuming the carpet and then you go ahead and move the curtain and you go back to vacuuming and the sun shines in at the right angle and reveals to you that there are particles in the air that you've been breathing and the whole room is filled with particles. And it almost makes you want to not breathe because you see so many of them in your home. What's the possibility God's grace is so thick upon the earth right now, that the work of Christ was so sufficient beyond the measure of need that God's grace is so plenteous in the dispensation of grace that you couldn't use all the grace in your lifetime because there's too much. Isn't that kind of what Paul found out? Oh God, oh God, you know, somehow let this thorn pass me. What was that thorn? It was the constant persecutions. One minute he's in the deep for three days. The next minute he's in a shipwreck. The next minute he's in perils of robbers and perils of countrymen and perils of this and perils of that. In other words, the devil was always inciting a riot to try to get rid of Paul, to try to kill him, to try to take him out, which tells you the devil himself couldn't touch him. He had to use crazy people called religious folks to try to do his work for him. And he's still doing that today. We put up advertisements for our healing center and we obviously stirred up a beehive because the religious folks came out in droves, you know, to say this is just another dog and pony show. Oh yeah, like somebody can heal from the pulpit. Another lady said, oh, he'll heal you if you give him enough money. And everything in me, if I didn't have a wife, I would have done it. I wanted to get on there and say, you bunch of morons, I double dog dare you to come to the meeting and find out what God will do. That's what I wanted to say. She wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> Next time I'm not going to ask her. I'm just going to do it. Attack me in the thing that God's wanting me to do and you don't even know me. 
you imbecile. You've never experienced it. And the Proverbs say a man that answers a matter before he knows it is a fool. So you bet you we're going to have a laboratory that's going to work with our healing center so we can stick that one right, right between their eyes. In a negative way? No, hopefully what we'll do out of love is to release them into, my God, this is real. Wow, wouldn't it be wonderful for some of them? I was lost in my religion at a time and would have argued that the gifts of the Spirit were gone and tongues was of the devil and the last apostle took all the anointing to heal. I'd argued with you even though I went to the doctor to get out of the Lord's will. This sickness is the Lord's will. Why? Because I prayed and he didn't heal me, which means it must be his will. But now tomorrow I'm going to go to the doctor to try to get out of his will. That don't make any sense. If they could only think of what they're doing, if they really did claim that that sickness is God's will, then they should die for crying out loud and make him happy. Amen, I had a coffee today, and that's what's happening right here. Amen. If I have one of them girly drinks, those little lattes, man, it's just all over. Praise the Lord. No telling what could happen. Praise God here tonight. And I always have more miracles the more feisty I am. You say, how come? Because then I could care less what you think about me. And the less I care, the more I'm going to make you do something that you don't want to do. Lady walked into the healing center. 4.15, she walked in, she's all twisted up. You've seen somebody twisted up like that. Walked in like this, all twisted up. She said, is this the healing center? I said, yes, ma'am, it is. She said, oh, good. She said, are you the healing school instructor? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, that's so wonderful. Would you please pray for me? And I looked at my watch and I tapped it a little bit and I said, ooh. I said, it's 4.15. She said, yes. I said, well, we're already done. We've been done for at least a half an hour. I said, you'll have to come back tomorrow. He said, what are you talking about? Well, see, healing school's at 2.15. We did prayer school from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, took a 15-minute break while you exchanged crowds, and we got the music all fired up at 2.15, and I'd usually come in right there at 2.30 and take the platform, and I'd preach till about 3.30, just one. When you're preaching 500 sermons a year, plus, you don't need to preach a whole lot as far as time. Because you get going and that, have that whole week. What I don't finish today, I just come back tomorrow and catch, catch right up. Amen. So here we were already done. The only reason why I'm there, I'm always back at the healing center. When I'm done, doing what? Getting ready for tomorrow to preach another two or three times. So I just happened to be there with some of the ushers, you know, just chewing the fat about some of the football games. She said, what, you're not going to pray? I said, ma'am, did you know that healing school started at 2.15? She said, yes. I said, people that want to get healed, get here on time. What's your excuse? She said, you're not, you're not going to pray for me? I said, it's 4.15. She said, you're not going to pray for me? I said, all right, I'll pray for you. I said, but on one condition. She said, and you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, this guy is scaring me. No, 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 listen, I do things on purpose. I'm just acting. I could be nice, but nice isn't going to help her. She's late. I got to locate her. How bad do you want this? 
People say, oh, would you please come to my house and pray for so-and-so? Well, where's so-and-so? Do they have a broken leg? No. Why aren't they here? So see, if I don't know what so-and-so wants, if I go to that house, I'm probably not going to be nice. Why? Because you're put out? No. Because nice is an accommodating word. I'm going to try to make you feel good about going nowhere. That doesn't help you. I'm going to share with you why you're going nowhere, and if you like it, you can go ahead and change and then go somewhere, or if you don't like it, you can stay the way you are. You know, Jesus was, nice. Jesus was walking in kindness, not nice, walking in kindness and love when he let the, the Pharisees have it right between the eyes with scriptures. You dirty dogs, here's where you, why? Because if you let them know who they really were, then they had an opportunity to see themselves in their own light. And in that moment, they could make a decision and say, man, I don't like where this is going. I, I want to follow you, Jesus. Or they could willfully choose to go the other way. See, it's my job when I'm with people to take away all your options. Until the decisions that you make, you readily know within yourself you are choosing to reject Jesus Christ or you are choosing to go with him. That's my job. Now, the only problem with that is if I do my job really well, some people don't like some of those options taken away because then it's too absolute. Do you want to know what happened with the lady? Just making sure you're here. Amen. Okay, so I looked and said, all right, I'll pray for you. I was a little sarcastic. I'll pray for you. But here's the thing. You have to be healed. And she said, well, that's why I came here. I want to be healed. Okay, that's good, 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 good. That means the moment I pray, you're going to run around the room. And she said, well, I mean, I'll be healed. And I said, that's the condition. You have to be healed, which means the moment I pray for you, you're going to run around the room. And she said, well, you, 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 you know what I mean. I mean, I'll be healed. And I said, good God, lady, are you kidding me? You're 4.15. You're almost an hour late. And now you're messing this whole thing up. Can you get yourself in neutral for crying out loud? She said neutral. I said neutral. Like, like I believe, but help them my unbelief. At least he was in neutral. And Jesus could do something with neutral. Can you get in neutral? Now, this was the best part of the whole story. She said, I think I can. I said, okay, let's watch you. She's like. And I said, are you there yet? She said, I'm, I'm almost. I said, hurry up. She said, okay, I think I'm there. I said, good. And I walked over and said to the name. She goes, that's it? I said, at 4.15, that's all that's left. <laughs> and then I grabbed her hand and I started to run. All the ushers fell out. They weren't any help. I grabbed and I ran. She's literally flapping in the wind. <laughs> and screaming bloody murder. And I'm dragging her and pulling her, and she's just dragging halfway around the room. And the power of God, boom, like a freight train, ran right into her, and I listened to her body, crack, 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 crack. And she was perfectly straight and outran me up to the front. Now, when I got to the front, and I let her outrun me, 
She's up there in front going, oh, my God, where did it go? Where did that go? Oh, my God, it's gone. Where'd that go? And I said, neutral, lady, neutral. Do you want to find it? Oh, no, I said then, neutral. Get in neutral. <laughs> and after she left, we picked up the ushers off the floor. <laughs> oh, Lord, if I knew what I was going to do when I do, I wouldn't be in this business. People come from all over the country and all over the world and say, do you remember when you punched me in the jaw? I said, I would never do that. <laughs> you hit me in the stomach. You kicked me in the knee. So, well, what happened? I got healed. So, you got a problem with it? <laughs> Woo, glory. I feel that, that feisty spirit here tonight. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, Charles Collins Church, with the Raymond Singers and Band. And here we are, you know, the crusade team, so we're helping and everything. Brother Hagen's up there and just all of a sudden stops and goes, ooh, he said, there's someone here who's got a problem with your, your intestines right here tonight. Where are you? Well, Phil Privet's wife, a pastor down in West Virginia, Hampton, West Virginia, she raised her hand, and Brother Hagin said, well, that's you. And she stood up, and she was in one of the front seats there. She stood up and, and stood right here. Well, when she did, that's my cue. We, we, you know, Aaron laid claws on the ladies, you know, you know, you know. Sometimes the lady would roll, and you had to, which cloth do I? And then you got to pick them up real quick and then keep on, you know what I mean? Be better for him to take it sideways and let her roll herself up. So she'd get ready to do that, and I jumped in behind, behind Barbara Privet, because I'm thinking Brother Hagen's going to come off the throne there, you know what I'm saying, walk down those stairs, about six or seven stairs, and come and minister to her. And when I got behind her, about 30 people came up, 15 on this side and 15 on that side. Brother Hagen said, well, she's the one, but the rest of you can get in on this. And I'm standing right behind her, right about here, and she's about where the pulpit is. And he says, now, Jim, and I turned around. I'm in the ministry of helps. I turned around to see what Jimmy's talking to. And everybody behind me, where's a bunch of ministers, pointed at me like this. I said, me. So I turned around. I said, me? And he said, yes, you. He said, take a step back. And then he looked at Miss Privet. He said, you take a step back. Well, we'd done this healing line with thousands of people. I'm talking about camp meeting back in those days. You have 10,000 people in a service, let alone 20,000 people would be registered. Remember those days? Well, in those days, we weren't smart enough to get 10 or 15 people and each one catch one, and then you just rotate down the row until your time comes up and you catch that one, and then rotate. Keith Holiday and I, we just... We just caught them all. And if Brother Hagen was running, oh, 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 we go... And sometimes you'd get somebody to get touched and they'd start to stagger like this, kind of saying, I don't know if I'm going to fall or if I'm going to fight it and stand. But Brother Hagen isn't stopping. So we don't have time to let you make that decision. So we just kick him in the knee and we pull him down. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 
They didn't know. They were out, and if they ever looked up, the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, amen. You just keep going. So I've been on the receiving side of women that would get touched and step back with a heel right in your toe. And now I'm going, huh! And people are going, isn't that amazing, that young man right there catching all those people, getting, getting touched by the Holy No, it wasn't the Holy Ghost. I'm screaming for my life. You just about broke my toe. Holy smokes. Put the snacks aside. You know what I'm saying? So he said, step back. I step back real quick. Step back again. I step back real quick. Now I'm up against the, the pew just like this. And I'm thinking, don't tell her to step back again. If she steps back again, she steps on me. I got nowhere to go. So he said, now turn sideways. So then she's like this in front of me, and she turns sideways. Now she's perpendicular to me. And the next thing he said shocked me. He said, Jim, hit her in the stomach with your fist. It's amazing how fast thoughts go through your head within seconds. Because the first thing I thought of was, come down off that platform, hit him in the stomach with your own fist, for crying out loud, your name's on the marquee. I haven't even started my ministry. You're going to ruin my ministry right here. In fact, they've never had me at their church. The next thing I thought of was, how hard do you hit her? In other words, if I do this, how hard do I hit her? Do I go up there like a little sissy and just give her a little tap like that, or do I bring it from left field? And while I'm thinking that, I hear this voice in my ear. I didn't have time to decide whether it was the devil or whether it was the Lord. But I hear this voice in my ear, and it was the voice of Cindy Black, one of the girls that used to travel with the Ramus Singers and Band before we got in there, and she's real Southern. And she said to me one day, Jimmy, if you ever do anything for Jesus, just do it big. If you get it right, get it right big. And if you get it wrong, just get it wrong big. I thought, okay, I guess that's my answer. So I just went like this and went pow, 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 and laid her out. I mean, she went, ooh, and on the floor. It's not my ministry. And she got up perfectly healed. And ever since, it's become my ministry. That's why I hit people. In fact, Smith Wiggersworth said it the best. He said, I never hit anybody. He said, I just hit the devil. People get in the way. And so if we smack you or do something like that, don't worry, you'll get healed. If you don't, you can sue me. <laughs> That's what it means to walk by faith where you don't care. You get out there so far, you don't care if someone sues you. You know whatever God tells you to do, it's going to mean the anointing is there. Now you don't go around doing things just to do it. That wouldn't be right. But man, if the Lord just ministered to you in a certain way, then you minister to people in that certain way. And most of the time, I tell people what's going on. In fact, I had one lady that stood up here and I told her that whole story. I said, ma'am, I told that story just for you. She said, I'm feeling so much better. I'm going back to my seat. I thought, my goodness, isn't that amazing? You can scare the devil out of somebody. Amen. <laughs> no, if you've ever watched us, we don't hit people with a fist or anything like that. We'll just tap you and make you, especially a lady, we'd make you put your own hands like that and just tap your hands, saying, Jesus' name. But I'll tell you, every time I've done that, the power of God's just like a hammer. Amen. Just goes right into somebody, sets them free. Amen. So thank God. Amen. I had to clarify that. But come on over to John and chapter 10 for just a moment, talking about this Christian consciousness. In other words, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. 
Well, if we're like that with God, that means we're really getting to know Him. Now, getting to know Him does not mean know about somebody we've never met. Getting to know Him means we're actually spending time with Him and there's tangibility attached to it. You know, I didn't marry a love letter. You're actually seeing somebody many, for many, 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 many years, most of our years together, and we celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary on Monday. Amen. Flying back in an airport with a mask on. <laughs> Praise the Lord, brother. That's what happens in the ministry. Amen. So we were delighted to be able to go to the nice theater in your town and see such a beautiful production and uh, be able to applaud our star, our star performer, Mr. Joe. Uh, I, I don't know if I would do justice to the name. Cog, cognota, cognita? Cognata? What is it? Dignata. Dignata. Amen. And so he did just such a beautiful, beautiful job. Amen. So that was kind of almost like a little gift for us. Praise the Lord. Something special. But anyhow, Years and years and years, Aaron wasn't able to be with me. So people would wonder, you talk about a wife, but we never see her. In fact, some of the places I've been for over 20 years, she finally went last year and they're like, we're so good to see you. Now the only thing is, I got to be real careful with what I say. <laughs> Amen. One of the first places we went to, you know, was down with some friends down in, in uh, Fuquay, Verena, uh, North Carolina. And I'm preaching there and I'm talking all about how wonderful it was, you know, because I was 29 when I got married and how I had to cook for myself and, you know, I didn't pay too much attention to spices or anything like that. We were all into volume, you know what I mean? You didn't care if you went to the family buffet because at least they had volume. Maybe it wasn't so good, but you could have all the chicken you wanted, you know. I said, but then all of a sudden I got married and food started tasting really good. Amen. And so while I was saying something like that, I said, but, you know, I do have a couple things that I actually I still do. And Aaron's sitting in the front, and all of a sudden there's a little quiet, and she just blurts out, what's the other one? And then I realized, oh, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, oh, yeah, just one thing. <laughs> That's just, so, so it's helping me to become more absolute, which is really, really good. But I didn't marry a love letter. I married a person, which means every single day of our lives when we're together, we have a story to tell. Some days the story is more exciting than the other story, but we always have a story. And so do you if you're married. Why? Because time and tangibility always leads to a shared experience. What did you guys do today? Well, actually, we just hung out. We didn't do too much today. Or, man, we went to this amazing theater. You can see, well, what was it? Oh, man, it was a story about Queen Esther. Oh, gosh, it was so good. The singers were amazing. I mean, the sets were beyond unbelievable. The time they put into those sets were just incredible. Really? What else did you do? Well, then we went out to eat at this Amish restaurant. And, amen. And we just, you know, got all these nice little desserts and stuff. See, we've got stories to tell you because there's tangibility and time with each other. Now, if he's never going to leave us and never forsake us, then the time element is really, you know, just all shored up because he's with you at all times. So that part shouldn't be a problem, that you're spending time with Him, or at least you're around each other at all times. The only difference is whether or not you recognize Him to the tangibility of what He can do. Anybody get that? Because if you're not paying, to the tan paying attention to the tangibility of the one that's with you all the time, guess what will happen? You'll go hours and days and sometimes weeks and months without even acknowledging that he's there. And let me tell you something right now. I haven't learned too much, but I have learned this enough. If we go hours and weeks and sometimes hours 
days and weeks and sometimes months without recognizing each other as a relationship and a husband and a wife, we're probably not going to last in our relationship. How'd you win over that girl in the first place? Ladies, how did you get him to win you over in the first place? It was the small little things that you did for each other all the time and the amount of time that you actually wanted to spend with each other. So I know, I know, I know what it's like when you finally, you know, let some of that wear off and you know 9 o'clock comes around and you just want to go to bed. But when you were dating, 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock came around and you were just starting. Now if it could be like that with someone you see, how much more could it be like that with someone you don't see? That you just kind of out of sight, out of, yeah, and they that keep their mind on the Lord have great peace. Why? Because they trust in Him, seeming to indicate the more mindful you are, the more attention you give someone that's actually with you, the more visible and tangible they become. Christian consciousness. It's not the thing you're believing for. Do you know how many people I see say things like, well, brother, I'm believing with you about that. And I always want to say, well, just keep your belief. And you say, well, that's not nice. Well, that never works. I never see it work when someone says, I'm believing with you. Why? Because somewhere, somehow, somebody that's believing has to make a connection. I'll put the lights on, on for you. But if you never flip the switch, they don't go on. This is a different generation, people. That's why we were talking about some of this. You can't preach some of the messages they preached years ago without making great clarification. Can't just walk in and talk about faith and say, you know, faith, you say it three times to your one-time believing. You say, how come? Because people don't believe anything they say anymore. Years ago, what they said, they actually meant from the heart. That's the reason why when it got tough, they still endured because they gave their what? Word. That type of personality and understanding of importance, integrity, and accountability will work well with God. How you do life, you can write this down, how you do life is how you'll do faith. And if your faith isn't working, it goes back to how you do life. The perspective of the choices you make, what's important to you, and how you make them with resolve and endurance has everything to do with how you translate your life into your faith with God, whether it works or whether it doesn't. So one person could be saying it and supposedly doing it the same as another, and one person has a connection and the other doesn't. It never really blessed Aaron when I would say, love you, hon, with my golf clubs on my shoulder while I could have made a better choice to spend time with her. She was gracious to let me go, but that's not the time to be acting like you really love her. It would be more loving if she said, how come you're not playing golf today? Because I wanted to spend time with you. We were going to play golf today. Pastor Joe even went and bought the tickets ahead of time, over $100.
and the opportunity came up to do something that was so much better and rewarding and more fun with my wife than with Pastor Joe. I would choose her over him. I mean, he's nice. <laughs> that they all got to go together. And then the nice thing that Grace does is, is all you had to pay was a measly little $4 to get out of the hundred-plus that he had to pay, and so God gave that back to him. Isn't that wonderful? And we had a wonderful time, and Pastor Joe and I will have many years in the future to play some golf. Amen. And that'll be awesome. Are you getting what I'm saying? See, it's the decisions you make that reveal the value of your heart. Where your treasure is, where your, where, is where your heart will be also. The Message Bible says, where your treasure is, is where you will want to be and where you will find yourself being. So if you were to say, I love the Lord with all my heart, but He only has about 10 minutes of your week, you can't say that honestly. It would be better to say, I love Him just a little bit, and I'm wanting to love Him so much more than to act like you totally love Him, but you hardly ever recognize Him. Wow, this is getting a little too personal, I realize that. But you got to talk like this if you want to get people to locate themselves. GPSs don't work unless you have a location that is current. It can't find, it can find where you want to go, but it doesn't know how to connect the dots unless you have a current location. And so many want to be here spiritually, but they're not willing to actually find out where they're at. Albert Einstein said, people, unless people, he said, un, uh, people wouldn't like themselves very much if they didn't have the ability to deceive themselves. In other words, because we can choose to only say this is kind of who we are when this is really who we are, we can like ourselves. But if we really look at who we are, then we might come to the end of ourselves. But the good part about coming to the end of yourself is that that's where you meet Him. Ah, oh, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Are you okay with this tonight? The last teacher, parent-teacher conference that we had was many years ago with our daughter Chloe, which is the youngest. She's 20 years old now, probably when she was maybe 13 or something. We had that last teacher conference, and it was with a gentleman that we walked into the office, and he said, Mr. and Mrs. Hockaday, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Would you just sit down? And we sat down. He said, now we want to talk about Chloe, your daughter. And I said, yes, tell us about Chloe. And the first thing he started out with, and we're so thankful that we can say that pretty much every teacher said the same thing about our kids, and not that they're perfect by any means or matter, and not that we did a perfect job, because we look back and we actually go, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe we didn't do a better job. I think every parent can probably say that. But at the same time, he started out by saying, if there were more students in, in this school that were like your daughter Chloe, it would be a better place. And I said, oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you so much. I said, can you kind of elaborate on that? He said, well, and we're sitting right next to each other. He said, well, he said, Chloe's very sharp, very smart, and she does her work very fast. And there's times all on her own when she's done with her work before anyone else, she'll just get up and go to the rest of the class and see if there's anybody that needs help. When she said that, when he said that, Erin slipped her foot over and touched my foot under the desk. And that gesture said, did he use the word help? concerning Chloe. 
So I thought what she was saying was I needed to vocalize that. So I said, sir, did you use the word help concerning our daughter? And he said, yes, I did. I said, wow, that's pretty awesome. I said, is there anything else? And now our feet are touching each other. And he said, well, after the class is over, I've never asked her to do this, but there's times she'll come up at the end of the class and come up to the front here and clean up around my desk so that I'm ready for the next, for the next uh, uh, class session. And now Aaron pushed so hard against my foot, I had to put a little weight on there or she's going to push my foot back. And all that pressure on my foot said, did he use the word clean concerning our daughter Chloe? So I thought, I better vocalize that. So I said, sir, did you actually uh, say that Chloe cleans? And he said, yes, I did. I said, I want to meet this person. <laughs> amen, amen. Amen. And you say, what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. We learn in life to be whatever we need to be in different situations to accommodate the situation. So see, to your neighbor's parents, you're one thing, and they may say, this person's a saint. And to you, they're another thing, and you're like, oh my gosh, how can I help this child? To some of your relatives, they're really on board. To some of your other relatives, you're pulling them aside saying, listen, I'm telling you, between you and this, you just make sure that because these people are not, and you say things to help them do what? Curb their behavior, become something else. To an employer, you're something. To an employee, you're another thing. So if this goes on in the world all the time, what's the possibility that maybe you're not sure which one you are so that we actually, when you come at 10 o'clock in the morning to a building that's called a church, hmm, do you see where I'm going with that? Which person are you? Are, 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 are because until you can locate you and be honest with you, you can't find him. Is this too personal, everybody? Your faces look really long. <laughs> so I'll give you a scripture, John chapter 10, verse 15. It says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I found out the other day that the little word as is a conjunction. And this little word as means, listen carefully, in the same degree and under the same conditions. Wow, that's going to add to this quite a bit. And now when you get into this verse, this is as the Father knows. The word knows doesn't mean intellectual knowledge. As the Father has intellectual knowledge about me, so I have intellectual knowledge about him. No, it's not saying that. Yes, the Father knew how many hairs were on the, on the head of Jesus, but Jesus didn't know how many hairs were on the t head of the Father. It's not talking about knowledge. It's not talking about intellectualism. He's talking about experience. He's talking about the same, under the same conditions, I've got to read this little word as again, in the same degree and under the same conditions that the Father experiences me, I experience Him. Now this is true. A real experience with somebody is just as much an experience for you to know me personally as me to know you. Now, do you intellectually know more about me? Well, sure, you're God. You know everything. But my experience is just as real to you as your experience is real to me. 
This is one of my favorite verses because it validates that Jesus didn't walk around the earth with some extra special something. He developed a relationship with his father that was so real and tangible, kind of like with my wife, time, tangibility, and Jesus walked around sharing experiences every single day of the things he saw his father do and the things he heard his father say. And this is the same relationship we're supposed to have and that's what develops Christian consciousness. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and very confident in the midst of the greatest crisis of life that I can make the blueberry muffins without sweaty palms, without shaking nervous hands, and without an upset stomach because I know how to do them. In fact, the thing that I know always is my go-to or my default, so in the time of trouble, I run to the thing that I'm most comfortable with, and then maybe for you making blueberry muffins but for the Christian it's hanging out with God ah, is this okay <laughs> Woo, glory now it's hard to go to some of these verses because I'm gonna go to some old covenant people especially one by the name of Elisha. And it won't take very long. I won't send you to everything. I'll just tell you where it was. 2 Kings 6, 4 through 7. The sons of the prophets, along with Elisha, were going to build, so to speak, a dormitory for the prophets. And they were chopping down wood. And they had axes. And one of the sons of the prophets was hacking away, you know, to chop down this tree, whether it was a little tree, whether it was a bigger tree, I do not know, but he was working on that thing, and, and that axe head came loose. I don't know what kind of binding they had with that axe. We know what, what Native American Indians look like. Sometimes they take and split that piece of wood right there at the head and shove that axe through and then bind that thing in many different ways to make it tight. Maybe that came loose. But one time when he's chopping here and he brings his arm back, the head goes flying off the axe head. He turns around and splash in a pond it goes. Now, it must have been a murky pond because if it was clear, he could have found out right where it went and went over there, reached down to pick it up. Now, it's obvious he knew the general direction because just like in a cool, you know, still pond, you throw a pebble, you can see the middle while all the ripples go from the middle. So he kind of knew where it was, but it must have been murky, must have been deep enough. He runs over to Elisha and says, my master, what shall we do? <coughs> the axe was borrowed, <coughs> excuse me, the axe was borrowed and the axe head came off and went into the pond. Without Elisha getting in prayer, going before the Lord, getting in fastings, going through a ritual, calling a minstrel for the Spirit to come on him. He just said out of his own soul, a soul that had the consciousness of God. In other words, there was enough reality on Elisha that God is on me to the degree that whatever I say, he'll back me up. So he said, go get me a twig. Now, now, you're probably thinking, what? Go get me a what? Go get me a twig. And that guy's probably thinking, 
What's a, what's a twig going to do? What happened to the old man? Is he losing it? So he goes on and gets a twig. He's not in faith for this. He doesn't have a consciousness that there's something beyond what he's seeing with his physical eye because the twig ain't going to do anything to help me get that axe out of there. So this doesn't make any sense, but he comes back and he hands it to Elisha. And Elisha grabs a hold of it and transmits into that twig the power that's on his life until that twig becomes a magnet to the axe head. Where did he get this consciousness? Because without it, you'd be going, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, God, show me what to do. But he seemed to act like he could do whatever came to his, oh, whatever came to his mind. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think infinitely beyond your highest prayers, thoughts, desires, hopes, and dreams according to the power that works in you. In other words, doesn't that scripture seem to reek of Christian consciousness? That you would become so filled with confidence in the presence of God that indwells your being, the reality of God that lives inside your body, the voice of God to your ears that in the most horrible consequences of life, you respond as one who knows what they're doing and God comes to your rescue. Do you realize these Old Testament prophets, half of the time, the word of the Lord would come unto them telling them what to do. The other half of the time, they would make it up and God would back them up. And do you know what I say about that? And I'll be honest, the first time I read that, you know what I said? Maybe you would, you would say the same. Gosh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Is that anything that you might say too? I wouldn't have thought of that. Brother, would you have thought of that? Would you have thought of taking a stick and then magnetizing it to the... No. I mean, we might have thought of, you know, everybody get your snorkel gear on, let's get down there and get that thing because... Or we might have said, you know, hey, listen, I got the ministry credit card. Just take it and tell that guy we'll get him a new one. Or if we didn't have any of that, we might have at least been nice enough to say, hey, listen, mine's pretty brand new. Let's take this to the guy and tell him until we can get him a brand new one, you can use mine. See, that would be the polite thing, right? Those are all the things that you can do. Did you get it? You didn't get that part. Let me say it again. See, we're not wanting to do what we can do. We already know what we can do. And usually what we can do versus what we can't do is very lopsided. If you haven't figured it out by now that you probably can't make yourself be what you want yourself to be, then you need to give up on trying to make yourself be what you want yourself to be and let the grace of God do something in you by hanging out with Jesus that you can't do for yourself and turn out to be something better than you ever thought you could be because you let God do it. That's why I've said one of the greatest keys to Christianity is can you get yourself out of your own way? Because we're in the way. You're being rescued by the Savior, but you won't let go of the little tiny tree that's starting to pull away from the edge of the cliff and you're going to go down and down, 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 and probably hurt yourself and be dead, but you won't let go of it while you're trying to reach out to him. Let go. Risk it all. One translation said of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which is now...
It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Cotton Patch translation said, now faith is betting your life on the unseen realities of God. That's where you let go, and you just let God come in, and if He doesn't, die. Excuse me? <laughs> Unless you can be wrong, you'll never be right. Unless you can lose something, you'll never have it. And unless you can die, you'll never live. If you want God to take over, you got to give up. I'm looking at the clock right now. I'm trying not to keep you. We'll be done in just a couple minutes. This is good stuff, folks. How did these guys get that? Ah, oh, come on. I'm looking at some of this. He told people to put flour. We told you that night, last night, to take care of the poison. Flour doesn't take care of the poison. Flour just makes your meal thicker. Right? And then, and then this other one here. Remember, remember, remember the boy with the woman that was making him a room to stay and she would always make him things to eat and everything. And then she looked, he looked at her and he told his, his, his servant Gehazi, he said, ask her what she wants. She said, I don't want anything. The servant came running back to Elisha and said, she says she doesn't want anything, but I know this to be true. They've always wanted a child and it doesn't seem like she can have a child. Tell her this time next year she'll have a baby, a baby boy. She came to him and said, are you messing with me? Because obviously that's her heart's desire for a very long, 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 long time. And all of a sudden he's saying something and she's wanting to let him know, don't be messing with me and tell me I'm going to have something I'm not going to have. And Elisha said, you're going to have it. Did the word of the Lord come into him saying that? No, it didn't. He just said it. Why? He was so conscious of God on his soul that when he said that, he released God to do something that God couldn't have done unless he released God to do it. Now that means he's very conscious of God on him in order to do it. Otherwise, you're just saying words. Come on, I'm in the middle of a meeting down in, around uh, Mobile, Alabama, and I'm preaching, and all of a sudden there's a family there, and there's a pastor's wife that I knew from years ago, and, and the husband died, the pastor died. She's there with her family, and there's her older daughter is wanting to have a child and, and, and wanting to have a girl so badly. And out of nowhere, I just turned and said, you'll have that little baby girl. And then I walked away, and I said, did I just say that you'll have? And she and her sister are there embraced the moment I said it, and just weeping and weeping and weeping, and now all these thoughts came into me, oh my goodness, I sure hope that was the Lord, you know, because it's going to get really, really ugly if she ends up with a boy. But I didn't say that out of my head. I said that out of my heart. And to this day, that woman supports us so beautifully. It's just an absolute testimony to what God did when she had herself a beautiful little baby girl. I'm telling you, when the anointing, and you recognize the presence of God, and you send it with words or actions, it will work. When you don't recognize it is when it doesn't work. We're supposed to be conscious of the God... If you go to the Mexican restaurant and have too many refried beans, something's on the inside working on the outside, oh, what a change in my life. Do you understand what I'm talking about? There's certain foods we eat that go, and you know they're there. Amen. You know it's there. How come we don't know God's living in us? Two weeks ago, the Lord said to me, stop. So I just stopped what I was doing. He said, now put your hands up. I put my hands up. 
He said, become aware of me right now. And I just, in just the moment I just did what I just did, I could sense his presence totally. Completely aware of me, the real me. And if you can become aware of the real you, then you become aware of the real him. In other words, this is my flesh, and two plus two equals four. But I can go beyond that to what? God living in my life. And he said to me, if you'll do this all day long, he said, it won't take long, and you'll become so conscious of me, the anointing will begin to increase, you'll begin to sense it, you'll begin to feel it, and the more you sense, the more you know to be real, the more you'll be able to accomplish. There's something about this. Real quick, look at what Jesus did. Remember, he came to do away with the Adam's family, but before he could do that, he had to fix everything that the Adam messed up. So look at what Jesus did. The first area of fixing things was in nature. He turned water into wine, and he didn't have to work on the mind of another human. A cowboy came up to me, one of my friends 10 years ago, that I've got 266 archived radio shows on our website that are downloadable for free. His name is B.J. Rickard. He went home to be with the Lord this past uh, March. But he came to one of my meetings, and here he is, a full-blown cowboy, a real, a real cowboy. And he walked up in my meeting and introduced himself. And I asked him the question, BJ, why are you at a meeting like this where we're teaching people to, to release the presence of God? He didn't even miss a beat. He said, I want to heal horses the way you heal people. I said, well, you'll actually do a better job on horses than I do on people because you don't have to work on their mind. And I said, would you like to, to meet Jesus? And he just kind of looked like this. He said, no, I just, just want to heal horses. I said, okay. I said, I'll see you next week. I saw him next week. He was there early. He's taking notes like crazy. What I found out about him was he was a genius. Authored 17 books in Barnes and Nobles on horses. He's got four earned PhDs. As a little boy, nine years of age, he, re he read the Bible in four hours. He reads 5,000 words per minute with 97% retention. He's got skills like you cannot imagine to understand things and know things about people. It's just beyond your wildest imagination. And so he mathematically began to figure out what I was saying and found out I should be experiencing God right now. That second session when he came up, he said, man, that's good. That's so really good, really, really good, Jim. That was amazing tonight. I said, well, if you like what you heard, I said, I've got to share something with you. It was all borrowed material. So you actually really need to meet the guy that wrote it. I said, so I'm not asking you this time if you'd like to receive Jesus. Give me your hand. Right now, you're going to meet the Lord. I prayed, he prayed, and then I looked at him and said, it's all going to get real spooky from here. And he went like this, said, what, what? I said, dee, 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 And I said, we'll see you next week. And if I've ever prophesied, that was a prophecy. Because it went from one experience to the next. How did he have experiences? Because he became, with his brilliance, with his mind, figured out that there is an aura and presence of God everywhere. And when he tapped into Jesus, he should be experiencing that presence. So just like that, he could feel God all over him. And the next week, he came and said, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, what happened? He said, well, we got a horse on the ranch. He said, it's got an eighth of an inch hole in its eye. It's blind. It's got bone spurs. It's got arthritis. And he said, I wrapped my arms around it and just said, God says you're okay now. I said, was there anybody around you? He said, yeah, all the ranch hands and the, and the, and the veterinarian. I said, what'd they say about that? He said, well, they cussed me out. I said, well, what'd you say back to them? He said, I cussed them out like they didn't cuss me out. I said, 
okay. And I just laughed, you know. And, and I said, what happened? He said, three days later, the hole filled back up. The eye is perfect. The horse sees. The arthritis disappeared. The bone spurs disappeared. And here's the other thing. The horse has brand new enamel on all its teeth. And somebody in here would say, oh, brother, I don't know if I believe that. Well, that news got out in the horse world, and he got asked by the OSU, Oklahoma State University medical staff, for their veterinarian program to bring the horse down. They studied that horse for over eight hours, and the little Baptist lady, four foot eleven, that was the head of the department, came out looking at big old BJ and said, I don't know who you think you are trying to play God. He just looked and said, ma'am, don't you think it's a little bit too late? The horse is already healed. Documented. Well, the next week he comes, you're not going to believe what happened. How come? He's developing a consciousness of God. When God becomes real to your soul, you do everything a little bit differently. Do you remember the kids being little and they had that little thing, they sometimes, it wasn't meant for this, but they put it in their mouth and it was a little, a little magnet and then they'd have something sticking on their cheek. Remember that little thing, Drew had that, and she was just playing with it, and then we're out in the front yard, and she dropped it out of her mouth, and the magnet went into the grass, and it's fescue grass like this, and I don't know where it went in, and she's a little tight, so she doesn't see somewhere around here, Daddy. Daddy, please find it, please find it, she was so, Daddy, please find it. And I said, we're going to have to ask Jesus about this. In other words, if I'm conscious of the anointing, we should be able to find it. And so then we began to look, and Aaron said, dinner's ready. So I said, go on in. I'll be out here just another moment. And it just took another moment when she went in. All of a sudden, I looked down. The place that I walked by before, all of a sudden, it caught my eye. Just a little bit of the, that, that uh, metal that was there. Reached down, picked it up. She said, Daddy, did you? <sighs> when you're conscious of Jesus, there ought to be something that's different. Pastor Joe and I work out together and he helps me lift something I can't help lift on my own, then all of a sudden I've lifted more than I could do myself. If the God of the universe is with us, we ought to be stronger, we ought to be faster, we ought to be wiser, amen? We ought to be able to have healing like nobody else has healing and victory like nobody else has victory. Come on, there ought to be a stark difference. So I'll tell you the last thing that happened, just to kind of freak you out a little bit, and this is just the beginnings of what my friend began to experience, and God used him to tweak me about how few experiences we have that we think we've, we've reached the moon and we haven't even gone anywhere. That if you have an experience with God, it shouldn't be like back in 1942. It should be right here this morning I had this experience and this afternoon this was my experience. And on and on and on and on and on it goes because your experience should be progressive. The more time you spend with Him, the more you know Him and the more time you want to spend with Him. And it never gets old. It's always fresh every single day like it was the first experience that you've ever had with Jesus and it just keeps on going and going and going that's what a relationship with God is so BJ comes to me that very next week and he says you won't believe what happened I said what happened he said well I'm at the feed store and he said this woman came in and she was just hysterical and said somebody somebody help somebody help somebody help and he said the guy who owned the store was busy with somebody he says well ma'am what can I do to help you and she said it's my cat he said, well, what's wrong with your cat? She said, I slammed the door on my cat's head. I don't know that my cat's doing very good. Could you please come and help me? He said, well, I'll come and help you, and I'll look at your cat. Where is your cat? And she opened up the trunk, and the cat was in the trunk. And I thought to myself, well, if you didn't kill him with the door, you suffocated him. <laughs> hey, man, it wasn't a good choice to put him in the trunk. 
So BJ's looking at that cat in the trunk and it's laying on its side with its tongue hanging out of its mouth and he said, ma'am, that cat's just as good as dead, dead as a can of corned beef. Real country, you know. Dead as a can of corned I don't know necessarily what dead as a can of corned beef means, but it must mean dead. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And she looked at him and said, well, I'm a Christian. Now remember, he's really smart. So if you tell a smart person something that has gray matter in it, it doesn't work for them. Like you can't tell a smart person two plus two equals three sometimes. Some people say it does. You know what I mean? Some people might go there. But a smart person will say, no, 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 no. It doesn't equal three. It equals four. So where are you going with this? And that's why he said, well, what does that matter? Because how could you be a Christian and have a dead cat? See, he's just coming into the things of God. See, we would all say, well, I pray for my cat and it's dead. Bless it. Amen. Secret things belong to the Lord. And we never question, why is it dead if we have a connection with God? I'm preaching out in, Oklahoma, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and this little girl talking about the dominion of Christ, and this little 12-year-old girl, uh, the, the father tells me the next year, I got to tell you the story. Story about what? She said, the story about Rocky. I said, well, who's Rocky? Well, that's our pet rooster. I said, you got a pet rooster? He said, I know, I know, it's my daughter's. I said, well, what happened? Well, you know, the rooster's in the house and it'll peck at any crumb and I'm setting the table and step back right on the head of Rocky and just broke his neck right there and it just flopped and dead. Pick it up, head just dangling. He said, now to be honest, it's my daughter's but when that happened by accident, I was pretty psyched because I wanted to get rid of that rooster a year ago. So I'm thinking, well, you know, sorry that it happened, but yes, finally Rocky's going to be out of the house. And I went to my daughter and said, honey, I am so sorry. Look at what dad did to Rocky. I stepped on him. I didn't know he was back there. We're going to have to bury him. And she said, bury him? Didn't you listen to Jim Hockaday talking about our authority? Dad, you're going to have to pray and raise Rocky up. And dad's thinking to himself, I don't have faith for Rocky. I don't even like Rocky. <laughs> So he says, honey, I'll be with you as you pray. And she grabbed Rocky and said, in the name of Jesus, come back now. <laughs> Rocky came back and dad is going, shoot. You know, are you kidding? Three years later, when I went back again, I said, hey, how's Rocky? He said, well, the, the weasel got him. I said, <laughs> praise the Lord. God does all kinds of things for people that believe. But we don't even believe that it's possible for some of these things. So we just throw a little prayer over there just to make somebody feel good that we did something. So BJ says, well, what does that have to do with it? She goes, I prayed. Now it's worse. I'm a Christian connected to God, and I actually talked to him about my cat, and my cat's still dead. See, BJ can't handle something like that because he's very, very, very smart. And smart people see it completely absolute. It's either black or white. It's never gray. Welcome to how God sees it. That's why he was able to experience things because the way he did life was exactly the way God did life. Was he refined in every area? Well, of course not. He looked at her and said, what'd you pray? 
And she got all misty and said, well, I prayed that God had mercy on my cat. BJ, BJ laughs and says, mercy? It's dead. You need life. And she said, well, I don't know anything about that. She said, yeah, I know. And she said, what do you mean by that? He said, you know. He said, no, lady, listen. I'm not praying for your cat. That's the ugliest cat I've ever seen. He said, but I will pray for you. And he put his hand on her shoulder, and he prayed the greatest prayer I've ever heard. And to this day, the greatest prayer I've ever heard. And I actually study so that I can learn about this prayer that he prayed that I heard. He said, God, please, please, open her eyes just enough. Wow, I really need to study. Just enough. I got so much more study to do. Just enough. We've turned this thing into a circus, everybody. He said, open her eyes just enough so she can believe just a little, and then you can be God. You mean somebody's holding God back from being God? Yeah. You're in your own way, and you're in His way. When he prayed that prayer, she cried out and said, God, please, I do believe. Meow. The cat sat up. She said, that's a miracle. And he said, four weeks in this, he said, no, ma'am, that's not a miracle. Yes, it is. It's a miracle. He said, no, that's not the miracle. She said, if it's not the miracle, then what is the miracle? He said, the miracle is you being, you being saved all these years, you finally just now believe God. Three days later, she called him hysterical and said, I took the cat to the vet. You're not going to believe what happened. He gave my cat a cat scan. Sorry, 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 <laughs> sorry. She said, he scanned my cat's head. It's a cat scan. Can't do any better than that, folks, right there. I mean, drums and all. It's a cat scan. And he said, whatever you did, you crushed the skull of this cat. But I cannot tell you how it got put back together. It is the Lord. And then the doctor began to weep. And she said, Doc, what's wrong? And he said, I scanned the rest of your cat. I took out, I, I spayed your cat years ago. He said, all the female organs are back in. Your cat can have kittens. She said, BJ, my cat can have kittens. He said, ma'am, quiet down. He said, I'm going to give you the money to get it spayed again. We don't need any more ugly cats in Tulsa. Christian consciousness. There is a transmission of God to the human soul that will help to put you over into Christian consciousness. And right now, we're going to worship God, and we're going to lay hands on any and everybody in this room. If we can just prepare some things, Miss Sarah, if you don't mind just playing a little bit, and, if, and somebody, if you don't mind moving this, this podium right here, amen? Christian consciousness. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just sing that song again 
that we were singing at the end. We'll sing it a couple times through. Get your mind on Jesus because we're going to lay hands on you, my wife and I. And God is going to impart some things to you to help you and to establish you. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 11. I long to be with you that I may impart something unto you to establish you. Paul recognized that you can preach to people. You can get them to read the Bible. You can get them to pray. But there's also an impartation, a gifting that will come to individuals to raise the level of their awareness of God, which is Christian consciousness. And what happens to an individual when God starts to become more real? Your prayers start getting answered. We try so hard to have faith, to please God, but we don't ever have to please God. Why? He's already pleased. Once you recognize grace, you realize it's not you that ever pleases Him. It's what He did for you that causes you to be pleasing to Him for the life. Yeah, but I don't always do right. It's not about doing right and doing wrong. It's about being who He is and who He's made you to be. God's pleased with you. God loves you. He just wants a chance, if you'll open up your heart tonight, to touch you. Some will feel the presence of God immediately. It'll be so tangible. Others may not. And yet you just grab a hold of the experience to know that God's in your soul. And all of a sudden you wake up the third day and everything's different. Like, okay, the birds are chirping different. It's like the hue in my room is different. It's like the shades are opened up just a little bit more than they were before. And I'm seeing things I've never seen before. Because that impartation will work in you. It'll grow in you. And it will not leave you. God is wanting to establish you so that you are aware of Him. The more aware of Him you are, the more you believe in Him. Yeah, you can learn something about Him. Like if I went to a history lesson and learned something about Napoleon Bonaparte, I could learn something about Him and I could tell people, yeah, this is what He did. He was a scoundrel here and yet He lived here and this is what He did here and this is how He began to govern. And, but do you really know Him? Do you really know Him? Have you experienced Him? No, no, I've experienced I mean, I've read some things that he said, and I've read about him. But Christian consciousness is actually experiencing Jesus. As the Father knows me, in the same degree and under the same conditions that the Father experiences me at the same time I experience him. Oh, that's so good. Put your hands up right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Life in Christ Church podcast. Help us to continue to share the message of faith with those all over the world. Visit licchurch.com forward slash give to partner with us today.